Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just after four o'clock and it is time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. Today, Oceanic Gold out of El Salvador. I'll be speaking with Kevin Bracken, trade unionist from the MUA. Elections in Zimbabwe yesterday. Peter Murphy has got the latest news. He's a trade union and human rights activist. Another human rights activist is Dr. Brian Singleratna, and he's won a major award in Canada. Life for Palestinian refugees in Lebanon. I'll be speaking with Dr. Olfat Mahmoud. And the life and work of Aboriginal woman Helen Williams by her friend Coral Winter. But first, Mr. Kevin Healy, it's his week. A week, Jane Lister, when we contemplated the real meaning of the word joint. Oh, but first, first, on today's program, the Downham family is the most prestigious, elitist, true blue Aussie values family true blue Aussie has ever known. Yes, he's back. After we thought we'd lost him to the week that was, Alexander has made a comeback, and we'll come to that story later. But first... No, just before that, this is true, listener, a definite Freudian. When I checked the start of that item, I typed nut first, and I thought, that's a Freudian if ever I saw one. Anyway, first, a week where we contemplated the real meaning of the word joint, as the media, including this segment, celebrates True Blue Aussie's mission for world peace via our, our Pine Gap joint facility with the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world in bombing the proverbial out of evil Iran because U.S. of big supremo Donald Trump or the poor knows you can't trust anyone who sticks to a deal. You don't amass fortunes sticking to deals. They will pay with the greatest firepower the world has ever known. Ever, ever. Great, great. So you plan to bomb evil Iran. We'll see, we'll see. The positive is, within a week or 3,000 tweets later, whichever comes first, Iran could be Donald's new very, very, very close friend. He's already tweeting about a meeting. Perhaps he can fix these conflicts to boost his campaign for what would be a truly worthy Nobel Peace Prize. After all, his predecessor celebrated his Nobel laureate by bombing the proverbial out of and slaughtering the bad guys throughout the eight-year big supremacy. So it doesn't restrict your capacity to utilise all those beautiful weapons of mass destruction. Although in this case, given the one supporter cheering and waving their joint star flags behind the Holocaust goalpost end of the ground, is Zion big supremo Benjamin not another Yahoo, the US of merchants of death can feel pretty secure their merchandise is in for a workout. But the real meaning of joint, joint, joint facility means we provide the joint. And that's it. That's our joint role. Fortunately, we can look forward to balanced objective coverage of all that now that the Spencer Street, no longer Spencer Street, Falfax is also no longer Falfax. And we can expect Channel None of its True's in-depth reporting and analysis to bring the real big news to its newly acquired mastheads. An octogenarian hitting the wrong pedal and smashing through a pizza joint window. Onlookers expressing their shock. 
I heard this crash. I, I thought it was a bomber. I couldn't believe it. My toddler and I had been standing right there just a minute earlier. A breaking and bashing in some quite suburban street. It's terrible. You don't expect that sort of thing in this sort of street. A young driver ramming a stolen car into a... Uh, sorry, a police car. Speculation the youth must have been a member of an African gang. Should Carlton Games finish at half-time under the mercy rule? All the big news. So there's every chance we wouldn't even need to know there was a war taking place. Although there'd be a temptation to boast of True Blue Aussie's invaluable assistance to our great, very, very, very close friend through our joint facility. And with an election on the horizon, there's nothing wrong with a bit of train killer jingoism. It's, it's right up there with refugee bashing. Speaking of bashing, back to our big item. The Downham family is the most prestigious, elitist, true blue Aussie values family true blue Aussie has ever known. Yes, he's back and haven't we missed him, taking off the spit the dummy of the week award in a no contest. After the bloody voters rejected his daughter's dynastic right, after she had been good enough to return from Victoria, to which she'll now probably return again, to give them the chance to be represented by True Blue Aussie's most prestigious, elitist, True Blue Aussie values family. Voters who are haters, 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 and newcomers. Parvenus who had no right to vote in the first place. A classic example of the mistake legislators made when they established universal franchise and allowed the hateful riffraff to vote. The landed aristocracy knew and know what's good for this country and its people. The great values of generations of Downhams. And Alexander decried the Whitlam Socialist government for destroying one of his rightful legacies. But for these hateful socialist newcomers, I would be Sir Alexander. No, no, Lord Downham. Alexander, your Spit the Dummy Award is on its way. Well, let's hope this time it is the last we hear of him. The caring business class was reaching for the single malt scotch to settle its nerves, its anger and shock that the ACTU voted to ask the Socialist Party, were it to become the government, to legislate for worker representation on all company boards. Spluttering over his cut crystal whiskey glass, former Business Profits Council Chair and non-worker representative on numerous company boards, Graham Broadley-Rich, said worker representation was a moral hazard and, poor Graham gasped, a potential conflict of interest to see yourself as an employee representative or any other representative implying, we assume, that good, caring business class directors like Graham see themselves as representing nothing. An employee representative he battled on bravely also raised the possibility they would act as a conduit to workers, which would conflict with the sacred principle of absolute confidentiality of boardroom discussions. In other, other words, heaven forbid, workers might know what they're up to. Caring employers can get worker input through extensive employee surveys and intensive communication. And look, let's face it, what would stupid workers know about the job they've been doing for years? They need those suits in boardrooms to organise them and tell them how it's done. 
and workers all appreciate the extensive surveys and intensive communication their caring employers' boardrooms never stop providing. Meaningful communication like, put your backs into it, you lazy bastards. Stevedore Hatching Plot Sons epitomised meaningful communication when it used text to communicate to workers that as of that meaningful communication, they were unemployed. And that consideration, saving the workers having to come into work to be told they were unemployed, told they had to be sadly let go, exposed just how evil, evil unions are. Forcing the fair work, no longer work choices just looks like a commission to find the evil union thousands for taking unprotected industrial action over the caring employer's considerate, meaningful communication. The union was lucky, actually, because the, and this is true, the fair work no longer just looks like ombudsman urged the bench to fine it millions and millions, saying each worker who missed a shift over several days, the number of shifts by the number of individual workers, should each be seen as an individual offence warranting the maximum penalty, adding up to trillions. Although in dismissing that argument, the bench said the strike was serious enough to warrant a severe fine. Assuming, therefore, there was nothing serious at all about hatching plots and sadly letting workers go by text, or sadly letting them go at all for that matter. And imagine the hatching plots they would have had to go through if there'd been a worker representative on the board, forced to plot the sadly having to let goes without the worker rep having a clue. No, it's all too impossible. A moral hazard, a threat to the sacred principle of absolute confidentiality. Now, let's play that fun, fun, fun game, pick the anomaly or pick the contradiction. It goes by both titles depending what state we're in. Okay, here goes. In a rare interview this week, Trouba was his most filthy rich or the filthy rich or near enough to it person, Gina Hartheart. Now, First clue in this very difficult game. Gina came by her fortune, or certainly got one hell of a kick start, when her dad impregnated her mum. And later when her dad went to the dear baby Jesus, the great Mount Tom prize in the sky. And she inherited all that filthy rich stuff he acquired from True Blue Aussie Public Resources. And clue two. We know there's been this expensive court battle, Gina defending a family trust set up by her dear departed dad worth heaps and heaps, with her offspring claiming they have a right to a, and a share of and control of the heaps and heaps. Never let a pile of dollars get between Gina and happy families, making for fun, 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 warm, cuddly Mother's Days down at Gina's. Well, in this interview, Gina, now remember clue one, Gina says the offspring don't deserve any of the heaps and heaps because the children did not pay for those shares or contribute in any significant way. Right, that's the data. Now, and I can see the game isn't easy, but pick the contradiction in Gina's argument. That should have you puzzling over it all night. Finally, speaking of logic... The bloke who lost the Pakistan election, who took over as leader after his brother, the former big supremo, developed a small problem arising out of a bit of corruption, making it difficult to run a campaign from a prison cell. The bloke who lost said the whole thing was rigged 
And here's the logic bit, the absolute proof. If I'm saying it was rorted, he looked all sincerity, it shows just how seriously it was rorted. And if I say the week that was is the most listened to radio segment in the whole world, it shows just how seriously the week that was is the most listened to radio segment in the whole world. Listener, good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. Years of campaigning in El Salvador against Oceanic Gold and its El Dorado project, the loss of life, of livelihood, of fear and repression, Corruption. Campaigning in several overseas countries, including the US, Canada and Australia, and years of speaking out on the footpath outside 350 Collins Street in Melbourne, the headquarters of Oceana Gold, have hopefully finally paid off. With the announcement that Oceana Gold has applied to the Government of El Salvador to permanently close all outstanding applications for the exploration on environmental permits and permanently withdraw from El Salvador. Kevin Bracken has been one of the leaders of the campaign against Oceania Gold in Australia and I spoke with him yesterday. We've had the news out of El Salvador that Oceania Gold is packing up its suitcases and going. Activists found it a bit hard to believe and some even double-checked to make sure it wasn't fake news. Has it been established yet, Kevin? Well, it's been reported in the newspapers over there that the Oceana Gold has is liquidating its assets there. They've reported that they've terminated the 80 local employees who had, who had been working there in the Ministry of Areas, Social Programs and Geological Research. And that was done on the 15th of September last year. And it's in the process of liquidating and dissolving its companies and assets in El Salvador in accordance with the current laws and procedures. That's what's been reported in the paper, so it's good news. It's also what was reported to the shareholders at the um, annual general meeting in Melbourne a month or so ago, that um, when some of the shareholders asked what was going on with it, why are we still in El Salvador, when they've got a, a, a law banning metallic mining, and they said, well, we are in the process of dissolving our assets here and getting out of the country. So that's a good, that's a good result for the people who've been, who live in El Salvador in the area of Cabanas where their mine is. Well, why then the scepticism? Well, they'll believe it. There's a few things they're just cautious of, and that, that is, a, you know, if they, if they do sell the land, they could sell it to one of their mates who's, you know, got another mining company, or they said when it's resolved. Also, there was re, it was reported that they changed the name of one of their um, foundations. It was either the El Dorado Foundation or Milorales Tolagos. They were in the process of changing its name, and they said, well, why would they change the name if they're in the process of um, leaving the country? But we've got people going over there who'll be, who are going to give us back a report on that. How much land is in question? Well, they only owned about 80% of the land that they wanted to um, use for the mine, and that was one of the reasons why they lost the investor state dispute settlement case that they ran against El Salvador. They didn't own the land, and they also hadn't concluded a, um, a proper environmental effects statement when they applied for the mining permit. So I suppose that's one case, you know, where with a case which is a, an exception rather than a rule that the um, the country triumphed in the um, ISDS case. But there's another case in um, Peru that uh, wasn't so successful, and that was the Santa Ana mine. And I've only become aware of it because 
some of the international allies who have been involved in this action with Oceana Gold, they're from the Democracy Center in um, Bolivia, and they're um, trying to get a, um, a petition up for people to sign. The Santa Ana mine is in the south of Peru, in Puno, and um, it's owned by the Bear Creek Corporation from Canada. They tried to open it up in uh, 2011, and the indigenous people in that area were opposed to it, primarily because they didn't want their water to be polluted. It's right near um, Lake Titicaca, which is on the border of Peru and um, Bolivia. So they were successful in blocking the project. But what Bear Creek Corporation did was it lodged an ISDS case against Peru, and that was in 2011. All that case was resolved in uh, November 2017 and it's found in favour of the Bear Creek Corporation and uh, Peru had to pay $37 million. But more worrying is that there was 18 of the um, community leaders in that protest had legal cases run, civil cases run against them by the Peruvian government. In 2017, while they were at one of the main spokespersons for the community, was sentenced to seven years in prison and fined about $600,000. And this sets a very worrying precedent that people who live, indigenous people who live in those areas, have been, they were treated like it was a criminal organisation and um, all they were doing was what we're entitled to do under you know, UN resolutions, that indigenous people have got rights and they have some autonomy over the, over the land that they've traditionally owned. Are you saying this ISDS ruling can send someone to jail for seven years? It wasn't the ISDS ruling that sent them to jail. It was it was the Peruvian government that sentenced them to jail. But the Peruvian government was also found or they lost the case, the ISDS case against Bear Creek, and they had to pay thirty-seven million dollars. But what was he charged with? He was charged with uh, conspiring, organising criminal a criminal um, activity, which was really only protecting the land that they've traditionally owned. And that's it does set a very bad precedent, and that's why. He's appealed against the case, and um, that's being heard by the Supreme Court shortly um, next month in Peru. And there is a, a uh, sign-on letter that people would like to, um, or they they want people around the world to sign on to, and they hope that that'll put some pressure on the Peruvian government to um, reassess the sentences that they've given these people. And how do they do that? Well, probably the easiest way, and I'll. I'd like to talk about it probably next week in more detail, but if you Google the Democracy Centre in Bolivia, you'll be able to sign on to that letter. But there'll be, um, we're trying to make it more accessible to people to sign on to, and hopefully we can come back next week and give you more details. Absolutely. Just going back to El Salvador for a few minutes, people have paid a fairly heavy price for Oceana Gold being there, haven't they? They have, and I suppose it's one of the facts. Yeah, there's a number of people who were assassinated, who were um, opposing the mine, and that was their last resolving thing, that they want Oceana Gold to cooperate with any actions to find the intellectual authors of those murders. So it's the last thing that we've been protesting for over here for five years. The rest of it's been resolved. They actually, Oceana Gold lost the um, ISDS case. They ran against the El Salvador government for $300 million. They had to pay $8 million plus interest for some of the costs of the El Salvadorian government but it wasn't the complete cost. It looks like they're leaving the country, which is a good thing. And they just, the last with the man was that we wanted people to 
they wanted the uh, corporation to cooperate with any investigations into intellectual authors of those murders. And this has been an international campaign, hasn't it, against Oceania Gold in El Salvador? It is. It has been, yes. And there's a number of countries been involved in Australia, and primarily because that's where Oceania Gold's officers are. Mining Watch Canada has been heavily involved, the Council of Canadians, international policy studies in Washington, the Democracy Centre, number of organisations in um, Germany. So it's been a cooperative process and we're very, and the, the international allies and especially the people in El Salvador are very um, grateful for the actions of all the people who came and did the protests at their offices there, which has been going on for nearly, well, nearly five years, including yourself, Jan, being champion of the, um, of the protest. And it's very hard to get people activated in Australia, as you know, with a bit too complacent about everything. That action's had, had a, has had a positive effect, and it's, uh, those people in El Salvador are very grateful for the, for the support they've had in this country. But it's also a tribute to the people, the local people of El Salvador who fought the good fight. They did, and those people who have lost their life, unfortunately, every time we had a protest there, we had mentioned their names. Not, it's, you just can't say there's just five people or six people killed. You have to name them because they were people who had family, relatives, friends were um, part of the community too. Marcelo Rivero, a school teacher, whose body was disappeared and he was found two weeks later tortured. Ramiro Rivera shot six, seven times in the back. He survived. That was in August 2009 and then um, on 20th of December he was shot with uh, Maria Michelle Vieira was next to him in a truck. She was shot too. Four people opened up with M16s. On Boxing Day, six days later, Dora Soto was shot. A mother of six, who was eight months pregnant at the time. And a uh, bullet also went through her two-year-old son's foot, who she was nursing. She was coming back from doing the washing. And um, Ramiro Rivera was the last one. He was in 2011. He was a school teacher and um, he was shot and killed too. So they've paid a heavy price and good on the people of El Salvador for standing up for themselves. And you spent. Extractive mining corporations from uh, many of them from Australia, Canada, and the US. And you spent some time with these people, didn't you, a few years ago? I, did. I was fortunate enough to go over there in um, 2013 as part of a uh, delegation sent from the Maritime Union and the international fact-finding mission, and that's what's led to the support that we've given them in the, here in Australia too. Well, the next um, battle against Oceania Gold is will be focused on the Philippines, where they've been there for a number of years, and the, the people out there have paid a pretty heavy price too, haven't they? That's right. People have been assassinated, and a lot of people were thrown out by the military and the police over there without compensation to, to when that mine first started. It's Oceania Gold's largest mine in the Dipio in the Philippines. The same things happened there. From what I've heard, the environmental effects statement they had was for half, a mine half a size, and when they and they said they couldn't uh, manage the water unless it, if it was any bigger than that. But when the mine opened up, it was double the size of what they'd originally estimated. So it's one of the cases where um, the mining laws were changed about 25 years ago, and, and the Oceania Gold's uh, license was one of the first ones taken out. So it's up for renewal next year. And a number of people including the Governor of Nevada Vizcayo is um, keen to see that mine closed down. So 
um, we're happy to be supportive of any actions over there to help um, those people live decent lives. And Duterte seems to swing from opposition to support, doesn't he? He does. So one time he says he's going to bomb the next open cut mine that opens in the Philippines, and on the other hand, he'll, uh, people are protesting some of the mines. He's treated as he's using anti-terrorism laws and um, rounded them up, and he uh, doesn't care much for civil rights, that's for sure. Okay. All right, Kevin. Well, perhaps we'll talk to you next week and find out more about what's happening in Peru. Thanks very much, Jane. And that was Kevin Bracken, and that is Kevin Bracken, trade unions from the MUA. And um, more next week on the situation in Peru. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do. And everything can change. For a number of years, Olfat Mahmud, the founder and director of Afidis Partner Organisation, the Palestine Women's Humanitarian Organisation, based at the Boris Barusha refugee camps in Lebanon, has been travelling to Australia to talk about the plight of the Palestinians and more recently the Palestinian Syrian refugees languishing in these camps in Lebanon. But her visit this year, which began in July and ends in September, is a little different. She will not only speak about the refugees and seek support for their return, but is here to launch her book, Tears for Tashiha, in which she talks about her career as a registered nurse, a peace activist and director of the Palestine Women's Humanitarian Organisation. Welcome once again to 3CR Olfat. I'm sure this book has been a long time coming for you. Who did you write it for? I wrote it for people to know about the refugees, the situation of the refugees. So I write it for anyone who wants to gain more information about the Palestinian refugees. So it's not academic, it's not political book, it's ordinary book. It's not dedicated to a certain person or... Oh. It's actually to my parents, who taught me how to love my country, and especially Tarshiha, my village. Can you talk about that village? You've never been there, but I'd imagine you've mm. been told so many stories by your family that you can picture it, but what was your, your village, your parents' village, your grandparents' village? Yeah. Uh, I've never been there, but my village is a place where it's sort of up the hill, and it's a very nice climate, especially in summer, where Muslims, Christians, and Jews live together in this village. People had uh, great relations and network, and they were always supportive to each other. What were you told of what happened in 1947-48? I was told that people were terrified of the war, of course, and... They were scared and they heard lots of uh, news about what is happening. Like, for example, there is a famous uh, uh, massacre called Der Yassin. When people heard about this, they were terrified. And this is why they were forced to leave their towns at gunpoint as well. How many people lived in that village? I'm not really sure. How many of your family were forced out? All of them. 
They all left my uncles, aunts, cousins. They all left. But that memory was kept alive once you moved into Lebanon by your family. Yes, actually, they kept the key with them. When they left, they never thought that they would be refugees. They left only searching for a safe place for their children. So they thought it will be for a couple of weeks, and they will return back. And this is what they were promised, actually. Also, the resolution, 194 UN resolution, gave them the right to return. So they never thought they would be refugees for 70 years now. And what was that safe place that they found? A place where there is no fighting, a place where there is no war. So my family were very close to Lebanon. They were at the Lebanese border, so they went to Lebanon, and they moved from one village to another until they realized that they became refugees, and then they moved to Burj al-Barajni. It's uh, in Beirut, very close to the airport, where UNRWA established different camps. They chose to be in Burj al-Barajni camp. And UNRWA was, is? UNRWA, it's United Nations for Work and Relief Agency for Palestinians. And what were the conditions in those early years? Oh, you know, the condition of the refugees. It's like uh, uh, they became stateless. They lost their land, like also lots of death. Like my grandmother told us she lost three of her children. It's, it was miserable life, like they live in tents for many years where, you know, it's uh, in Lebanon in summer it's very hot and winter it's cold, so they live in tents with miserable condition. And when they established the camps, the agreement between the UN and the Lebanese government, it's temporary place for Palestinians, which means no water, no electricity, no phone lines, no space. And it continued. Until now, we have miserable life. Until now, we have the same space as people had after 1948. So no way to expand except to go up. And people never built their homes to be permanent. They never expected to be on exile and to be refugees for 70 years. So we don't have really good foundation when they build their homes and... Lebanon is in, uh, Beirut especially, is an earthquake zone. So we pray we won't have one, so the whole camp will collapse. Well, I'd imagine they wouldn't have the resources or the money to build proper houses anyway, would they? This is one reason, and the second reason, it's like the regulations. This is temporary place for Palestinians, so they were not allowed to build really sort of like houses, but because they became so long refugees for 70 years and the only way to expand is to go up, so they allow them to build second floor and third floor, but as I told you, that was like, you know, not really strong. Was this the only camp in Lebanon where Palestinians went or were there others? we have 12 camps scattered all over Lebanon, north, south, Beirut, yeah. And altogether how many... Twelve camps, and the population in Lebanon, according to the United Nations, it's 425,000. It's a lot of people, isn't it? Mm. And the United Nations helps with all those people, or there are aid agencies who come in and do work as well? The United Nations, after 1948 war, was the one to look after the Palestinians. But unfortunately, nowadays, they are facing a huge problem after the United States 
cut the fund, their fund for UNRWA. And we have now a huge problem facing the Palestinians, especially schools, because most probably UNRWA won't be able to continue provide education to the refugees. And what uh, they provide is health, uh, health services, no hospital. It's just the clinics in each camp. There is a clinic where they do mostly pre- and postnatal care. Are you saying that the Lebanese government give nothing to these camps at no, all? No, we have no access to any Lebanese public services because we are considered refugees. Are you aware that this is the, the normal thing with refugees around the world, that the, the government and the country where they arrive has nothing to do with the Unfortunately, people? Unfortunately, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's the opposite. Like, these people became refugees. It's not their choice. They are forced to become refugees. No one can bear, especially if you have children, how you will bear the war, how you will be able to stay in a war zone. So people leave because of that or because of persecution or, or. So they should be treated better. What was childhood like for you growing up in those situations? It makes me stronger, actually, because I would ask why we live such a life and also be like, you know, feeling the injustice and also losing your dignity when you live in a refugee camp. So to gain your dignity again, you have to be stronger. You have to struggle. You have to be well educated as well to be able to face this problem. Where do the children go to school? Yeah, you and schools. But, no, we don't have you on university. University, you have to pay for your education. Uh, what families do, they, most of, if you ask me about the income of the refugees, the main income for the refugees in the camps, I tell you, the majority are dependent on relatives abroad. When relatives travel abroad, they support their families. They send back some money. It's not secure money, but it, at least it's, some sort of support. We finish education at Honorwa School, UN School. Parents send their kids to university, hoping that their relatives abroad will help them. As you know, in Lebanon, we have also no right to work. So that makes it very, very difficult for the Palestinians. Like, for example, I'll give you an example. When I finished my high school, I couldn't go to university. So I went to School of Nursing, and did nursing for many years. I worked with Palestinian Red Crescent Society because as Palestinians, I told you, we have no right to work except in the Palestinian, within Palestinian workforce. So I went back to university after 12 years. I worked, I saved some money, I went back to university because something inside me wanted to be really well-educated. So I did my uh, degree in psychology and sociology. Then I stopped for a few years. I saved some money. I went back and did my master. When I finished my master, I worked for a few years and then did my PhD. You know, sometimes people can't afford and they don't have enough support from relatives abroad. So children stop going to university. Take you back a few years. When you think of a refugee camp, you think of refuge, that it wasn't a always a refuge, was it? There was terror as well with Israeli war. Can you explain what it was like to live in camps during those times? Camps were always targeted. And when we had Israel war in Lebanon, they will bomb the camps. 
when we had the civil war in Lebanon, the camps were targeted as well. Always we are horrified. And I remember when I was little, always at the door, at the main door of the house, there will be a small suitcase with all our urgent clothes and our papers. So we never slept and felt safe. You never know. Many times at midnight, we hear bombing, and then we will rush and take the suitcase and leave the camp. Always expected war and always terrified. Were you aware of the the horrors of that, though, the camps where thousands and thousands of people were killed? You mean Sabra and Shatila Mm -hmm. massacre? I am a survivor of Sabra and Shatila. I was a nurse at that time, nursing at the hospital, where when they entered the hospital and killed patients, doctors, nurses. I was uh, lucky with some of my friends. We were on the ground floor, and we were able to jump from the window to outside the hospital. Why was the hospital attacked? It's war. It's Palestinian hospital. It's like, you know... And this is, again, a Sabra and Shatila massacre. It's like a war crime. Ariel Sharon was responsible... And uh, nothing happened on the international community level. He should be charged. He should be taken to international courts. Yeah, many times, even we have, uh, during the civil war in Lebanon, uh, many doctors and nurses were killed as well. So they attack even hospitals. And it wasn't just the Israelis, was it? It was the Lebanese. Both, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Lebanese uh, extreme, like, you know, right wings. And that's how the Israelis sort of get out of it, isn't it? By saying it wasn't us, it was the the Lebanese that did the killings. But later on, the investigation showed that Ariel Sharon was responsible because, uh, like, they were actually supervising and they were sending all the news to Ariel Sharon and he did not stop them. The opposite, he encouraged them to continue. Can I take you back again to when you first met Helen, Mm. Helen McHugh, which must have been a life changer for you because that led to another area of your life, didn't it? Yes. Can you explain? I met Helen, Dr. Helen, in 1982, after Sabra and Shatila massacre. And this lady came. She wants to to do voluntary work with Palestinians. She resigned from WHO, World Health Organization, and she wanted to do voluntary work. We worked together for around six months at the beginning, and then she said, I'm here by myself working. I think if I go back to Australia, I will do more work, and I will have more people working for the Palestinians. So she came back to Australia, and she started to work on establishing an NGO based on uh, trade union, and uh, this is how she started AFIDA, the Union Aid Abroad AFIDA. The first project was in 1984 and was to bring nurses to Australia, and I was one of them. I did community nursing here in uh, Sydney. And uh, when I returned back home, it was uh, war. So I had to nurse in a very, very bad situation. Many people died, and it was really a horrible experience. I quit nursing after that because I felt oh my, like, like sometimes you are, you are skilled and you know what you want to do, but if you don't have resources, you got stuck. And I started to do community nursing 
raising awareness sessions and all of this type of things. We kept, of course, kept that relation with Helen. She would call all the time. She would be our voice here in Australia. Yeah. And when did the Palestinian Women's Humanitarian Organization get set up? In 1993. And that was part of VITA as well? Supported by AFIDA, yes. And what did you hope to do with that organization? Because we felt that there is a need to have a women's organization. If you are a general NGO, you tend to think general things. But if you are specialized, then you, you think in special ways. So this is why we wanted a women's organization. So we look at women's issue. We did the first needs assessment we did for women was with Helen McHugh as well. And we did this needs assessment. A woman actually surprised us. Not really. I was expecting. But they did not ask anything for themselves. They were asking for the family. And we kept saying, but what do you want? They kept worrying about the health of their parents, of their parents-in-law. They, they were worried about their kids' education. But they did not mention anything about themselves. And this is how we started the organization. We responded to their needs, but we added special programs for women to look at, you know, raising awareness for women's issue, women's rights, women's health, women's uh, uh, positive parenting, talking about domestic violence. And actually, because we are refugees and we have no access to any public services, we know how to work things in mind, but when it comes to practical, it's difficult. Like, for example, domestic violence. What we do, we talk a lot about domestic violence, and we want women to speak out and never to think it's her fault. Because the problem, the root of the problem is, actually, men fight with their wives because they are not breadwinner anymore. And it's like... Okay, if we have social welfare, if we have, you know, we can transfer them to these uh, departments. But unfortunately, we don't. We don't have any access to any public services. So what we try to do, try to help both of them, men and women, to cope, try to tell them also, like if you fight in front of the children, this is not good for the children, so you have to be careful how you handle things. Yani coping mechanism more than solving the problem, really. And we have health projects to especially for, women, for middle-aged women because the United Nations, they have a clinic for pre- and postnatal care. But after that, nothing for women is designed. So we try to do Lots of work around menopause and about women's health in general. You're listening to 3CR, Tuesday Home Time with Joan Bartlett, and I'm speaking with Alfat Mahmoud, the founder of the Palestine Women's Humanitarian Organisation based in the Burj Berisha refugee camp in Lebanon. And more recently, she's published her book, Tears for Tashiha, the home of her family in Palestine. Are there a lot of or a great number of old women there still in the camps? Actually, not many, especially those who were born in Palestine, unfortunately. But we collected lots of oral history. Also, the life expectation is not really high in the camps due to many illnesses and due to the stress-related uh, illnesses. So 
Many people are dying really before they get 50 even. What's the source of food in the camps? You know, in Lebanon you have all sorts of foods, but it's what people can afford. This is the question. Lebanon is a very expensive country. And I know many families, they live on, you know, cabbage and rice. Because carbohydrates, and people live on carbohydrates actually, because it's filling. You feel you are full. Also, uh, we have what's called manaish. Manaish is similar to pizza, but uh, it's uh, bread, and on the top of the bread, dried thyme and oil, and oil, and they bake it. So people live on this. Some people, they eat it breakfast, lunch, dinner, just fill their stomach. But actually, we have a huge problem with anemia, huge, huge problem with anemia among children, women, old people. So... Food in Lebanon is available, but can you afford it or not? This is the problem. And while you're doing all this work with the people, with the women, what about your family life, your parents? My grandparents passed away and my parents as well. What about your getting married, having children yourself? Mm, Yeah, I get married and I have children. And now I understand the worry of my mother and my grandmother because... I can't tell you, being a refugee, how painful experience it is. And always, you want good future for your children. I always talked about right to work for the Palestinians. But when I experienced it, it was oh, with my son when he was graduated and he couldn't find work and he was so frustrated, so angry. It's like you wanted the best to your children and you are always scared as well. What will happen? What will be the solution? How my family will be affected? Uh, also, families are scattered all over the places. Like they, any, any young guy, if he gets the opportunity to leave Lebanon, they would leave. But that means they can't... They, I, like, for example, I have two sisters in the United States, each one in one state. I have one brother in Sweden. One brother in Dubai. It's like, what life this? Everyone is this, like, you know. And this is the situation of the families. They are really, always there is a worry, always unknown future. Always we don't know what will happen next day. Like, I'm here in Australia. I want to check my Facebook all the time just to get more news because in Lebanon now they are forming the government. Always when we have a new government with a new prime minister and there are new regulations towards the Palestinians and you always get scared, oh my God, I hope nothing will happen while I'm outside. And then you have the war inside Syria. Yes, we were were very affected and we are still affected by the war of Syria because there are many Palestinians in Syria, they have relatives in Lebanon like when in 1948, when, they, when people came to Lebanon and the United Nations said that we will have camps in Lebanon and in Syria, families split as well. Some of them stayed in Lebanon, some they went to Syria. So during with this fighting in Syria, many refugees from Syria, Palestinian Syrian refugees, they came and they joined their relatives in Lebanon. So they are sharing the very little resources. They're in the camps? Yes, in the camps. Like, I, again, 
Burj al-Barajni, the size of the camp is less than square kilometer, and the population was 27,000, now around 44,000. How does it work? Oh, don't ask me. It's like, you know, it's unbelievable. And no one knows when the war in Syria will exactly. ever end. One will end, yeah. You've been to a number of countries over the years. What's it been like actually leaving your people and going overseas? And Always I go on a, on a mission, like I go for, on a speaking tour or like, you know, work thing. Without a passport? I have travelling document, uh, UN travelling document papers. But you don't have a passport? It's not a passport, normal passport. So it's not easy to travel. Always I should be supported by a strong invitation letter from international NGOs or something like that. In spite of that, it's always I face troubles. When you enter any country, even if you have a visa, they will stop you. And they will, like, I don't know what investigation and what and what, and delay you from coming out of the airport. Can you explain why you don't have a passport? Because I'm stateless. I'm a refugee. My, uh, my homeland was occupied, and we became refugees. If you are stateless, you don't have a passport. What do you do when you're in Australia, apart from doing interviews like this? You are here for quite a while. Yeah, I'm launching my book, Tears for Tarshiha. So I'm doing lots of talks, public talks, and launching the uh, the book. Plus, of course, this type of interviews, radio and newspaper and TV. Talk about your son who now lives in Canada. Mm. He went back to the, the village. Mm. What did he tell you? Because you would have heard mm. so many stories over those years, and yeah. he was going to relate to you firsthand Mm. what it was like. First of all, how did it impact on him? And how did it impact on you to hear from him telling the story? My son was lucky to have a scholarship and he went to Canada, studied there, and he became Canadian citizen. So the first thing he did, he wanted to go back home. Even on a visit, he decided to go to Tarshih. I was very worried, to be honest. Like, oh my God, what will happen to him? He was stopped at the border for nine hours, in spite he is Canadian. And when he went to Palestine, he went to Jerusalem, and from there he went to Tarshiha. He wanted to visit my village and the village of my husband, El Baskol, but he couldn't go to El Bassa because it's a military base now for the Israelis, so it's not allowed to go in. So he went to Tarshiha, and especially my son, I used to hear a lot about Tarshiha from my father and my mother as well. So he told me, the minute I entered Tarshiha, I don't know what happened to me, to my blood. He said, I throw myself on the ground and I started to kiss the ground. And then I said, what am I doing? I stood up and I said, oh my God, I always thought people exaggerate their emotions and feelings. But he said, I don't know what happened to me. And... He told me, Mom, it's like the breath, the, the, like, you know, the wind. The, he said, I don't know what it made in my body. And I was walking around Tarshiha, and he said I was somewhere else in the world. I was thinking of my grandfather when he was, my grandfather, when he was young, he used to walk on these, around these uh, streets and around these homes. 
So he said, I could see only my grandfather. And of course, my father died in 2002, long time. He said, I wish my grandfather was still alive to talk to him and show him Tarshiha. But he said, like, like what I always say, as if we know Tarshiha before, because of their stories, because of their talks, I felt I've been here before. And uh, what he did for the memorial of his grandfather, he went and he planted a tree uh, in Tarshiha by the name of his uh, grandfather. He said he went there for 10 days. He ended up staying there three months. What reminds of what was there when his grandfather was there? Yeah, like the house is still there. My grandparents' house is still there. And his caf- my grandfather has a cafe. It's, all, it's now a carpentry workshop. Lots of things staying, like the church, the mosque, like the old Tarshiha is still there as it is. And even the streets, and he took thousands of pictures, of photos, of videos, and sent it. Uh, you know, people were very happy to see someone is in Tarshiha and in Al-Aqsa. So people used from the camp to ask him to do something for them while he is there. So what he used to do, make a sign on a piece of paper, greetings from Al-Aqsa to, and mention the name. And people were delighted just to see this sign in front of Al-Aqsa. And he did around 800 signs for different people. And once the Israelis stopped him and he said, they said, what, are, what do you do here? Every few days you come and you have all these signs and take pictures. And he said, the people who used to live here, they missed the Al-Aqsa and they wanted a message from Al-Aqsa. So this is what I am doing here. Is it forbidden? And he said, no. He said, okay then, why you will stop me? People Im- imagine a sign written, handwrite, just mentioning their name, and Aqsa is missing you, Mr. Pla or Mrs. Pla. That was enough to make people very, very happy. What about the reaction of the people who live there at the moment, in the village? People, ah, they, he told me, as if they know me for years and years, they welcomed him, they were, they always wanted him to, to have dinner with them and lunch with them. He, they were also, they said, no, you should not go to the hotel, you should stay with us. And he made lots of friends. Also, he made connections with Tarshiha people in Tarshiha and people in the camp. Now we have we have a group on Facebook and we know the news of each other. Uh, when they get married there, they posted it. When they have someone graduated from university. So now we have uh, exchanging news together. How did it impact on you, his visit? Knowing that you could be there too. I was very happy. And I wanted to be there. Has anyone else gone back? We are not allowed. It's only because he's a Canadian citizen yes, that he could do that. Yes, only because he's Canadian. And he, wa- he found it very difficult as well. How old is he? Now he's 31. When he went there, he was 29, the first visit. And then last year, he visited as well. He went by himself? or By himself, yeah. It's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah. And that's the issue, isn't it? The whole issue of all the 70 years is the right of return. 
That's what it all means, isn't it? Exactly. It's the right of return. Yeah. Yeah. Because we are, as I told you earlier, we are given that right. Resolution, UN Resolution 194. And we should be given this right. When you're far away from home and far away from Lebanon, you feel like talking to government ministers here, people in Australia to say what you can do for us or you don't get the chance to speak to anyone like that? I will get a chance to be in Canberra and to speak here. And my message actually is right of return. Let us live in one democratic state with equal rights. Let us live together Palestinians and Israelis, Muslims, Christians and Jews, we used to live together before 1948, so why we can't live now? We tried the two states, it didn't work. One democratic state. You know, I always say, nowadays, everyone talks about international human rights, civil society, civil rights, democracy. So why when it comes to the Palestinians, we deny it? What do you answer to that? Why are the Palestinians in the situation where they are? Is it because of the strategic position that Israel holds in the world now? It is, and the economy also. You know, they hold most of the economy in the world, and they are in a strong position, and the world is uh, supporting them. And when you see the, the people in Gaza flying their kites and you see the Israeli jets come over... You know, people from Gaza, they have been suffering for years and years and years. And what what was done for them? Nothing. Frustration. They face lots of troubles in their daily life. For more earlier, but recently for the last 10 years. So what, what people expect? If you are... They are very despair. They are very... Uh, depressed, they they really frustrated. It's a prison. It's a prison, yeah. And it's not even an open-air prison because you've got the planes coming over, you've got the fences, you've got no ladder in the yeah. sea. Yeah, they are desperate. Suffocating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And the world watches. And the world watches. And, yeah. wa- and waits for the next time Israel decides that they'll yeah. bomb them. And they are very, like, uh, I read something in the Arabic news that the people from Gaza, they are very worried about having another war. Well, it's every four or five years, isn't it? Yeah. What's your final message to the people listening? Uh, To learn more about the Palestinians, because there are lots of misunderstandings. To know more about the history of the Palestinians, to know that before 1948... It was called Palestine. The more you gain information and knowledge, the more you will be uh, aware of what's happening. And my message is to help us to return back to our homeland and live together, Palestinians and Israelis, as I said, in a democratic state with equal rights and civil rights. Thank you. Thank you. And that was Dr. Alfred Mahoud, who runs the Palestinian Women's Humanitarian Organization in one of the many Palestinian refugee camps in Lebanon. If you'd like to assist, there are two ways you can do it. You could get onto a feeder, A-P-H-E-D-A, get onto their 
webpage and find out how you can assist Alfred with her work in Palestine. Or you could buy her book, or you could do both. It's an e-book, Wild Dingo Press. It's called Tears for Tashiha. And you can get that through www.wilddingopress.com.au. Did I say Wild Dog? It's Wild Dingo Press. www.wilddingopress.com.au. Tears for Tashiha. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. From the 10th to the 14th of July last year, the UN Special Rapporteur on the Promotion and Protection of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms, Mr Ben Emerson, visited Sri Lanka. Dr Brian Sinaratna is a human rights campaigner of over 60 years for the Tamil people and I asked Brian first what he would be able to achieve in just three days. Well, first and foremost, uh, I think your listeners should know who Ben Emerson is. He's a QC and a British lawyer specialising in human rights and international law. In the UK, he is a deputy high court judge. Now, the interesting thing, looking at his report, is that he saw a whole lot of people, but he couldn't see the president. He saw the secretary to the president. In other words, President Sirisena couldn't spare 10 minutes to speak to the UN Special Rapporteur on the protection of human rights and fundamental freedoms. That, that speaks volumes of what is going on in Sri Lanka. Well, in answer to your question, uh, how much could he see? Well, it depends upon who went with him. If a person from the armed forces went with him and he was speaking with the victims, which he says he was, then, of course, what they have said would be a fraction of what they could have said if he went alone or he went with the interpreter uh, who was not Sri Lankan. Part is not clear. But uh, my guess is that, I mean, he's not a fool. He has been, with his experience, he would know that to go with an army person would be an exercise in futility. So he went to the north and the northeast? Yeah. Yeah. He did go to the north and the northeast, as far as I gather. I'm fairly certain that he did go to the north and the northeast. But the report is devastating. It basically says that Sri Lanka has done nothing, quoting from uh, the second uh, page of his uh, uh, article. It says, yet two years on and already four months into a two-year extension granted to the government by the Human Rights Council, progress in achieving key goals set out in the resolution is not only slow, but seems to have ground to a halt, virtual halt. None of the measures 
so far adopted to fulfill Sri Lanka's transitional justice commitment are adequate to ensure real progress, and there is little evidence that perpetrators of war crimes committed by the members of the Sri Lankan armed forces are being brought to justice. I mean, that is as damnation a statement as you could expect from anybody. The Human Rights Council extension, when does that finish? I think it's uh, it, the extension was given on the 1st of October, so 2nd of October 2015. I think it finishes this coming October. It's a three-year extension, I think. And how many have they had now? They had. <laughs> how many extensions have they had? They had about three extensions, I think. Well, it makes a bit of a mockery of it, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. You can go on extending it any number of times. You know, the whole uh, UN uh, human rights system is a farce. That is why the present UN High Commissioner, uh, Human Rights Commissioner, uh, Prince Zaid, has said that he's not going to apply for uh, extension or renewal of his contract. He says it's a waste of time. That, I think, is a damnation. The fact that Zaid should say he is not applying for an extension. That itself shows, but I have repeatedly said in a number of my writings, that this is just a farce. It's a talk shop. So you scratch my back, I scratch yours. Nothing of any consequence happens at that place. I mean, I've been there, and I won't go again, simply because it's such a waste of time. So if you're expecting any positive results from the UN Human Rights Council, I think you're backing up the wrong tree. Well, where can the Tamils turn then? Yeah, the Tamils can turn to their members of parliament who can pressure their politicians who can actually take this to the United Nations itself, not the Human Rights Council, but to the UN itself. They can take it there. And, of course, uh, the only other thing is uh, to encourage the people in the north and the east of Sri Lanka to uh, protest, and that they are doing. And I think it's going to actually come from Sri Lanka rather than outside. The more you have... I've always said that people will put up with harassment and intimidation up to a point. You can't go on doing it forever. Neither Hitler or Mussolini or... If you have Pol Pot, they found that after a certain time, people who are quiet don't remain quiet. And that is what I'm hoping will happen. And uh, the indications are that more and more uh, protests are occurring across the entire North and the East. And people are simply not going away. I mean, they are sitting down and saying, no, we want our children, or our husbands, or whoever. I think that the action will have to be in Sri Lanka, however difficult that may be. Are you talking about the long campaign to find out where the disappeared have gone? Yeah. yeah. Can you explain that a little bit more? I don't know much more, uh, much more to tell you, except that they have gone on for some 300-odd days, and there are about four or five... Uh, protests going on at the moment. How many people have disappeared? Is there, are there figures that they've collated the figures of how many people that they're trying to find or <laughs> the bodies they're trying to find? There are figures. The question is how reliable the figures are. 
You know, there is a publication from Pearl, P-E-A-R-L, which is outstanding. I, I think that uh, I'm writing a summary of that, and we'll discuss that some other time on your program. It is an absolutely outstanding organization centered in Washington. They actually sent, I think, three or four people to Sri Lanka, they were Tamils, to talk to the people in the north and the east. And the report they came out with was absolutely, it was fantastic. But uh, it's something that should be duplicated and sent to all members of parliament, and certainly someone should write about it, which I will do. But Pearl has been outstanding, and there's an equivalent uh, organization in Jaffna in the north of Sri Lanka called the Adyalam Center for Policy Research or something like that. But Pearl, P-E-A-R-L, in Washington is just outstanding. We've had yet another asylum seeker return to Sri Lanka in the last couple of weeks. Yes, I heard about it. I didn't go into it in detail because I can summarize the situation and say that whatever he has done or not done, it is illegal. Australia cannot be a signatory to the Refugee Convention and then send people back to where they came from or where they escaped from without breaching the convention that they have signed. In other words, what Australia is doing is illegal, unethical, and unacceptable. I think that it's time that someone reported Australia to the UN Human Rights Council and say that what this country is doing is illegal and unacceptable, and it's time they stopped it. It's not only that he's gone back to probable torture, but... Not probable, certain torture. Uh, but left the, his family here. Yeah. Separated the family. Yes. Which is against law, the law as well. Yes, it is, it is against the law. You can't break up a family. I don't know if the, the children are involved, but in a lot of these cases, you're not only breaching the, uh, the asylum seeker convention, but you're breaching a whole lot of others, other conventions, signed and ratified by this country. I think that Australia has as big a case to answer as has the Sri Lankan government. Yes, we have a lot of uproar about what um, Trump was doing in the United States, separating yeah. families, but there doesn't seem to be the same level of concern here, I suppose, because it's not the number of people, but it's the same situation, isn't it? This country has the worst record anywhere in the world. I have gone over this in some detail, and I'm not making this statement lightly. This country has the worst record in the treatment of asylum seekers as any other country in the world. There's no other country that treats its asylum seekers and refugees worse than what this country does. I mean, this is a disgrace. You see, it's all right for people in Canberra to do these things, but those of us who travel abroad, and I'm one, and I was in Canada the other day, getting an award, some human rights award, and I was asked, what are you doing about what Australia is doing? You know, it's an embarrassment for us, because you, you can't answer it. And all I say is that I'm not part of the Australian government. But I'm not trying to defend Australia. Far from it. I've got to say, uh, well, uh, these people um, are violating uh, the UN uh, 
Convention, signed and ratified by this country. And therefore, this country, it should be uh, emphasized that this country is as bad, if not worse, than Sri Lanka. And Canada is a country that has accepted many, many thousands of Tamil refugees and asylum seekers. Canada is probably one of the most civilized countries of the lot. The Canadian Prime Minister, Trudeau, I knew his father. He, he too was a very nice chap. The, but this guy is particularly nice. I think the, the whole setup in Canada, except the weather, is outstanding. Can you share with us what your award was? My award? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Must I? It's called the Nelson Mandela Memorial Award. Uh, presumably for the work I have done for the Tamil community. I didn't know about this. I was asked to come to Canada to give a short talk on uh, human rights. I thought it was a long way to go to Canada to give a short talk. And when I went there and said, when is the talk? They turned to me and said, what talk? I said, look, I come here to give a talk. He said, no, you are not come here to give a talk. You came here so that we can give you an award. And the award is a, a, a glass. It's a beautiful glass uh, trophy. Anyone, anywhere in the world, who has made a contribution to peace and uh, reconciliation and uh, injustice. And I'm actually the second person in the world to get that. The first person was Yasmin Suka, who is the head of the human rights group in uh, convention in uh, South Africa. And I was the second. I was embarrassed because I said, look, I thought that before you get a Nelson Mandela award, you got to go to prison for a couple of years. So far, I have not. <laughs> Congratulations. That's uh, all I can say. Thank you. <laughs> Bye-bye. Okay. Thank you. Such a modest man. That's Dr. Brian Senwaratna, who's been working for peace in Sri Lanka, peace and justice for the Tamil people for over 60 years. The 2018 Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is on the 11th of August at the Brunswick Town Hall. Stalls, books, projects and organisations fighting for a better world, here and abroad. Come for the stalls, stay for the workshops. Topics ranging from indigenous struggles and decolonization, climate change, anti-racism, unions, feminism, refugees, anarchy 101 and so much more. Interested in a stall? Email us on info at amelbournebookfair.org. That's info at amelbournebookfair.org. Or message us on our Facebook page, Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair 2018, a 3CR supporter. Speaking now with human rights and trade union activist Peter Murphy. Peter, are there any results through yet from the elections in Zimbabwe? No, there's no results uh, except some very tiny numbers. You know, uh, I've seen pictures of uh, summaries of votes cast at different polling places where the total number of voters is like 200 or 250 voters. And they're showing the MDC alliance getting more votes than the ZANU-PF 
in terms of the presidential vote. But they're, they're such tiny numbers, I wouldn't uh, take it too seriously at this stage. The counting began when voting closed at 7pm on uh, uh, yesterday in Zimbabwe, and it's, it's not that long ago in terms of our time because we're eight hours ahead. It's, it's just too early to know. The Electoral Commission is promising to have uh, results to declare on Saturday, but they've also said that perhaps by Thursday it would be clearer, uh, clear enough to say who's the likely winner of the presidential election. We don't really have long to wait. The good thing about yesterday's voting is that the turnout is reported officially by the commission to be high, but they didn't put a figure on it. But it seems something like 75 to 80% of the registered voters have turned out to vote. That would be roughly four and a half, maybe 4.3 million voters. The uh, voting was reported by uh, observers to be slow, too slow in some parts of Harare. But uh, other parts were working, other place, polling places were working fine. So uh, there was a little bit of uh, frustration there. But it seems that all voters who who stayed to to cast their vote got to cast a vote. They extended the time after seven o'clock uh, in the evening for some places. So that's good, um, and no reports of violence at all, which is also very good. This makes it a bit different from previous elections, to say the least. Although a relatively high turnout is, is, is a feature in Zimbabwe. The sort of longer term outlook is, is a bit problematic because it rallies on Friday. Both uh, the ZANU-PF and uh, MDC Alliance held rallies in Harare, which were pretty big. I'm sure the images showing, show that the uh, MDC Alliance one was bigger. But uh, at that rally, Nelson Chamisa declared that he was already the winner and that if he, did, he wasn't the winner, that would be because he'd been cheated. It is a bit of a formula for um, protest and uh, possible violence after Saturday. So uh, I think everyone needs to stay on the alert and keep on talking down this type of idea that there should be some kind of uh, predetermined outcome to the election and that the proper processes should continue to be pursued. We'll see just how that turns out. And then also at the rally on... On Friday, Nelson Chamisa said that uh, he wanted to make room in uh, the next government for the National Patriotic Front, which is a party, a new political party supported by Robert Mugabe. This caused some consternation at the rally itself. So uh, he then later held a media conference at which he said there was no place in, the, in his cabinet for Grace Mugabe because this was the main story, that he, he hasn't said who he would nominate for the two vice presidential positions in the event that he won the presidential elections. And uh, so many people were saying he's leaving one of the spots open for Grace Mugabe, which would be really crazy. So uh, over the weekend he held a media conference to say there was no place in, in his uh, cabinet for Grace Mugabe. And because he, he held a media conference on the Sunday, this was a breach of the electoral law, which said no more campaigning on the day before the election. And uh, also Emerson Manangagwa held a counter-media conference, so he also got named, or it's indicated by the ZEC that uh, the police will be investigating two people for breaching the campaign rules. So the two main candidates did that. So uh, they, these are the you know, elements swirling around the situation. And just scanning the internet and looking at the comments from different voters, it seems that the atmosphere was quite jubilant 
people really seem to be happy to be voting and to be trying to make a change for the better for Zimbabwe. So, you know, I'm sure the rest of the world is really behind them in that sentiment and we we hope it works out. But uh, I think it's actually a very fluid situation with a lot of different uh, little battles being fought out as well as the big one between Emerson Manangagwa and Nelson Chamisa. And Robert Mugabe was seen voting for the opposition against his own party? Yes, I think it's worth noting, you know, this is an element behind the concerns that Chamisa would be including the Mugabe somehow in, in any government he had because Robert Mugabe also gave a media conference, uh, I think on Friday or Thursday, at which he said that he would be, he would be voting for Chamisa. So, uh, this is the sort of unbelievable nonsense, uh, that's going on there that, uh, the sort of godfather figure of ZANU-PF would vote against ZANU-PF. Yeah, this is another element. And he did cast his vote, and he had a sort of, uh, apparently, people cheering him and people booing him. Manangagwa voted and no one cheered <laughs> and uh, no one booed. And Chamisa voted and there was a lot of cheering. So that, that's the picture. All of that happened in, in Harare. So I think it's worth noting that um, the urban vote is mainly in Harare. There's about 900,000 registered voters in Harare and about 250,000 registered voters in Bulawayo, the second biggest city. So perhaps um, uh, all through the country there's about 1.3 million urban voters and that you can tell by the arithmetic that means there's, there's over 4 million rural voters. And it seems that uh, Chamisa is very nervous about what's happening in the rural areas which uh, indicates uh, you know, an uncertain organisational base for MDC Alliance in those areas after all of the upheavals of this last year, especially with the death of Morgan Chungarai in February. Yes, it's, it's a little uncertain, and this is, adds to the uh, sort of apprehension that uh, you know, there's any number of excuses that might be wheeled out in the next few days for why or one candidate or another didn't didn't win the presidential election. I think the National Assembly election is also very important. And uh, again, the ZANU-PF have been very outspoken about how they're going to have a big victory there too. But um, I think that the, here we're going to see a lot of contests bec uh, because there's many, many independent candidates, some of whom are fairly obviously the best candidate in, in, in the particular constituency. They are running as independents because they were eliminated by ZANU-PF processes or by MDC processes, uh, which were very, very controversial, marked by cheating, violence, um, arbitrary decision-making. I think the National Assembly is also going to be maybe a very positive uh, house once this uh, election settles. And uh, there may be, um, you know... Um, far more independent voices or genuine debates taking place there and, and good thinking about what, what laws should be passed. Regardless of who wins, Peter, what would it take for the economy to be turned round and for people in neighbouring countries to come home? Well, I think that this is the, the deeper challenge which the elections are meant to help address, that uh, the economy... And people have run out of adjectives to describe how poor it is, you know, whether it's comatose, paralysed, paralytic, in its death throes, but it's uh, you know, just, just on life support, really. And uh, there is still pillaging or plundering, I think, going on. 
of uh, government money and also from the diamond uh, and broader mineral sector. That is that the, the revenues from this are not properly being distributed through taxation or even genuinely through company reports. The level of distrust from the international community and from domestically, you know, from Zimbabwean people is, is, is a really huge barrier. If this election can look plausibly credible, that will go some way, you know, to warming up interest in uh, some kind of uh, rebuilding of uh, the economy in Zimbabwe. And uh, the next test would be the formation of a government which included people who were not tainted with uh, obvious corruption. The current government of Emerson Mnangagwa is, is tainted like that. But the next one, if it's his government, may well be quite different. And, and if uh, there's a Chamisa-led government, there would be the same test applied to it. That would be the next test. And I think there's a sectors that everyone has to look at are agriculture because it used to be an exporting, a food exporting economy, and now it's a food importing economy. So it's got the potential to have a fairly significant turnaround in agriculture, you know, and that's a sort of one to two year process. So it's still, uh, you know, a process, but it could be a short process to really show signs of recovery. It had uh, a, a reasonable ag uh, industrial sector as well. This is a, an area which has been completely shattered <clears throat> in the last 20 years, given the way the world has changed. It's also hard to know how much global supply chains would look to Zimbabwe as a location for some role in their production systems. Uh, but there is still, I think, real potential for Zimbabwe to, to have produ industrial production in terms of the construction sector, food processing, and uh, you know, some of the inputs into health and education. It's got a, a way to have a kickstart of its own, but there would need to be a genuine negotiation with South African companies, with European and North American companies for a longer-term stability. So um, I would say we, we really don't know. <laughs> People can plot out like I just have, a sort of a, a roadmap. But the crucial things are not, you know, a billion dollars even here or there, but trust, confidence and peace and uh, sort of a, a sense of new national unity. These are the intangibles but which are the real basis for recovery. And uh, I think, you know, people are holding their breath and hoping, yes, this election we seen take place yesterday is a step forward. And yeah, so far, I think we can say, yes, it is a step forward because high turnout, peaceful, and the, the counting is underway. Okay. So, so far, so good. You said that three-quarters of the voters are in the rural areas. If there are no longer exporting food what are the people employed with in the rural areas and, and what's happening and how many white farmers are still in Zimbabwe? We're down to you know like a few a thousand or two white farmers left in Zimbabwe you know so it's a very tiny number but economically speaking they're very important basically they're, they're very marginalized quite a few I mean thousands of the white farmers moved to Botswana to Zambia to South Africa some to Mozambique as well, to, and they have been effective you know, farmers in those economies in this last 15 or so years. If they were given some real confidence that they, they could take part in a stable production process again in Zimbabwe, they'd be back, I think. But uh, in the rural areas, people are subsistence farmers, 
they don't have any real capital. They rely on the government to supply seeds and fertiliser at the planting season. They just you know, don't have the technical uh, inputs going along with that. That is uh, the tractors, the irrigation, um, the harvesters to do things at the scale that was done before. So, you know, that's why if, if there was a genuine investment in agriculture that was uh, well-based, there could be a big turnaround but uh, so far, so far it's been the opposite. You know, the country has been plundered of uh, public resources. Uh, I think uh, there's a role for the, the Zimbabwean, black Zimbabwean farmers, and there is a role for the white farmers. And actually, both groups want each other. They have respect for each other. I've seen enough of discussions with people to, to, to know that. So all of the destruction has been, you know, for political purposes not because of social tensions. So this is, you know, a huge legacy from Robert Mugabe and holding on to power at any, any cost at all. Okay, well, that's for next week. Going back to the <laughs> Philippines, Peter, are we any clearer about the State of the Nation address by Duterte? Yes, it seems to have been uh, completely overwhelmed by the political change I talked about last week where the Speaker of the House of Representatives was replaced by former President Gloria Macapagal Arroyo, a sort of uh, a massive uh, a public shift of alliances, uh, allies yeah, among the elite has just happened. Uh, it's just like a split now represented by Arroyo from the uh, sort of Benigno Aquino, uh, Aquino family Liberal Party tradition of the elite. Uh, one block, Arroyo's, has now shifted across to the Marcos block, which you could say is really led by President Duterte. There's, uh, you know, winners and losers in the elite. Uh, and I think, you know, it, um, it raises uh, a lot of tensions, I guess, about how this uh, new federal constitution may really unroll or roll out in terms of new fiefdoms being created for certain families in the provinces which are created in the, in the new constitution. It's uh, true that um, last week, on the Monday, there was a massive rain event, almost a typhoon struck near Manila and flooded large areas of Manila itself as well as north in Pampanga and so on. So there's a, a um, you know, it actually, it's just the weather stopped the politics to some extent from, from unfolding, I think. I think we will see more stress uh, now about politics inside the Congress and uh, uh, perhaps really unfortunately we're going to see more repression, more displacement of Indigenous people in Mindanao, uh, more pursuit of the war on drugs. I, I, I do think Duterte feels on top of it. He's made a manoeuvre which was successful in the short term and I think for now the prospects of peace talks which would actually address the economic and social difficulties of the country, the peace talks with the National Democratic Front of the Philippines. They're, they're somehow on life support to somehow the back channels kept alive, but the, the formal process continues to be put off, put off and put off. So uh, I think that's it's a bad formula or a bad outlook for Philippines at the moment. Better pushback from the people? Well, I think that as far as I can tell, 
the weather dampened down the uh, possibility of open you know, public rallying last Monday. There was some of it, but uh, it wasn't as strong as you would like to see or as, as would be expected by the level of agitation among people. Yes, I think we have to wait now for some other uh, set of events where the people will come out and be able to demonstrate their feelings. But uh, there's actually really, from the grassroots level now, a, a campaign to remove Duterte. So it's an echo of remove Marcos and remove Estrada and remove Arroyo. There was a big movement for that. We know from those experiences that unless the rallies take place and unless the rallies are 100 to 200,000 people in Manila alone, they don't have enough momentum to make the political impact. But I think once you see things on that scale, the, the level of um, instability within the Duterte government would, would start to really uh, spin out. I can't say when you know, the, the next event is uh, on the calendar. So we've, we've passed J July, and I think uh, the next big thing that I'm aware of in historic terms is uh, in, in November. November 28 is Bonifacio Day. It's a day of um, commemoration of the 1896 uprising against Spain. It's a revolutionary national day and one that the grassroots identifies with. In the past, uh, around this time was when the Estrada, Aust Estrada movement really got going. Um, but he himself, Estrada, um, initiated that by cancelling out a commission of inquiry into some corruption. It's much more likely that the, the trigger will come from Duterte going one step too far for people. He's, he seems to have taken many steps too far already to me. So that's why I say it's just a bit hard to, to predict. But, you know, as, as I said before, his recent declaration that God is an idiot, for instance, was deeply offensive across the country and really brought out a, a different level of uh, alarm about him. You know, I, I don't think it's far away that a movement will really manifest itself uh, against him and uh, how it will sustain itself and how rapidly it might grow, that, that's unpredictable. Just wondering how his um, speaking about the Catholic Church reflects on Sister Pat's ability to stay. Well, it doesn't uh, all go well for Sister Pat's case. Um, however, she did uh, lodge her appeal just prior to the deadline, which was also last Monday. And uh, I think I, I haven't got a time frame on how long the appeal might take, but I would say at least 30 days. I, I'm certainly continuing to inquire about the, the scheduling of this process with her. But it's great that she's insisted on saying that, no, that she's done, she's done nothing wrong and that this deportation is purely a punitive and arbitrary measure and in that you know she's suffering like millions of other Filipinos from crazy arbitrary measures by the government. She's just a really uh, solid person who's uh, going to play whatever role she can along with all of the people around her to, to confront these crazy and such bad decisions by Duterte. Thank you once again Peter. Okay let's see how it goes Jen. Another one to follow up for next week with Peter Murphy. Finally on Tuesday Home Time, a tribute to an Aboriginal woman who dedicated her life to improving conditions for her community in Manangrida, Northern Territory, 
and I'm speaking of Helen Williams. She was the co-founder of their first refuge for women, children and victims of domestic violence to protecting Arnhem Land from a petroleum company drilling in the Arafura Sea. Those who saw the film Stingray Sisters will remember her in the words of her friend Cora Winter, quote, a vibrant, strong, intelligent and infectious personality, unquote. I spoke earlier to Coral and asked her to talk about Helen's early life and the influence of her family on her later life. Her family actually came from Goulburn Island, right up in the Northern Territory, right up on the, you know, in the Gulf and the Arafura Sea. Her father became a pastor and had sort of quite a leading role in the community even then. And then during the World War II, because the Japanese were going to invade those islands, or they thought they were, he was relocated to Manangrida. And um, so she was born in um, Goblin Island, but she lived in sort of canoes back and forth as a child between all the islands and Manangrida. Manangrida is an Aboriginal community mainly about 500 kilometres east of Darwin. Her first language was actually, it's called Gabalang, and there's very few speakers of that left, which is really sad. It's only from that generation or older who still speak it, from Goulburn Island. There's a whole lot of different languages, I realised, on those islands. They all spoke a slightly different language. But in the end, Helen spoke eight languages plus English. Jabana, which is a language um, that is a common language used in Maningrida. Yeah, so she grew up and then they... The, the, the Maningrida, many, many people haven't heard of that that town, the ship, but it was built in, established as a trading post in the 1940s and then as an Aboriginal mission in the 1950s. So a whole lot of missionaries went there. But they did manage to build a primary school there. And so um, Helen was one of the first people of, you know, of her generation to actually go to school in Maningrida. And so she learned sort of the ways of the colonisers and the white ways and she learned English and I think she also spent some time in Darwin at a high school so she was quite well educated in English and in, in the education system. What was the influence of her mother on her? Look um, I'm sorry Dan but I don't know much about her mother. I think she died quite early on so it was difficult yeah for, the, for the, all the children so I, I, I know very little about that I'm sorry. What did she go on to do with her life? Well, she's lived in Manangrida all her life. She had seven children there. She founded the first domestic violence shelter for women in, in the community because there was a lot of, still, still a lot of sort of problems there. So she set up in the 1970s, she was a very sort of front runner to do that in the 1970s, refuge for women, children and victims of domestic violence at Manangrida. It was called the Barbara Women's Centre and um, she worked there for about 20 years as well. But the Barbara Women's Centre is now converted into an art centre and it's incredible there because we, I went there uh, when I was up there for her funeral and they've got this beautiful artwork going on there. Like they make um, materials, hand-printed materials and um, it's become a real international centre for these beautiful um, handmade garments and stories that are printed onto the garments, onto the, onto the fabrics, and they become quite famous. There was recently an interview on uh, Radio 
national about one of the garments which was of a mermaid and um, that immediately sold out in the next 24 hours. But that was done by, I saw it up there when we went up there for the funeral and that was done by the women up there. So they created this whole huge art centre where they make um, also the uh, weavings and handmade statues and things like that, yeah. She did all sorts of other things. She also became on the education board of the school. She also set up with a founding member of the Balwinanga Aboriginal Corporation, it was called BAC for short. That was where people would buy all their groceries, but it meant the profit from that went back into the community. It just didn't go to a private corporation. So that was a, a really huge, important organisation she helped set up. It, and also meant that um, for these big funerals, see, they're gone for a week. Uh, we went up for that, and an enormous amount of expense for the families because, well, at Helen's funeral, they had something like 400 to 500 people come from all over the different communities because they all knew her and knew of her work. And so it's an incredible sign of respect for all the work she did over the last you know, 40 years in Manangarita. When did you first meet her? Oh, well, I first met her in the 90s because our two daughters, my daughter and her daughter, grew up together in Brisbane because they were sent to live, or two of them were sent to live Freedom, sorry, was sent to live with their father, a white father, in Brisbane to get an education. And so that's where my daughter met her when she was 10 years old and they became close friends. So I, I got involved in with Helen that way through our daughters. Talk about the daughters because that was a very, very important for her too, wasn't it, the work that her daughters did? The, the daughter who did all the work to save Armand Land to protect Arnhem Land, was to stop a mining company that was going to mine not just the land around Arnhem Land and the coastline, but the actual seas. And I didn't realise until I went up there in the 90s that the sea is very important as a source of fresh food. That's where they get all their oysters, shellfish and other, you know, sort of fresh food. And so if they were going to mine that, that would have destroyed their whole sort of nutritional basis and the way they, you know, survived up there. So along with her daughter, Alice, they set up um, Protect Almond Land and fought this drilling company was going to drill in the Arafilian Sea for five years and finally they withdrew their application because there was so much pressure against it. So they saved, um, Helen and her daughter Alice saved 1,500 kilometres of the Almond Land shoreline from destruction. How did they do it? It was just an announcement in a newspaper, you know, like sort of one inch that this company was going to drill in the sea and nobody knew about it and someone told Alice about it and um, they decided, realised they'd have to do something about it. So no one knew, none of the community had been asked because at this point sea rights is still not, Indigenous sea rights is not recognised. They'll recognise, you know, some of the land claims, but they won't recognise access to the sea and these people as you can see from Helen's life where she was living in a canoe virtually from one of the islands all the time her whole childhood that the sea is part of their indigenous rights and so they campaigned amongst all the communities up all the Aboriginal communities up there and also took it to the Northern Territory and to Darwin and to the government and they made a film about it it was called well my daughter made a film about it called Stingray Sisters 
as part of this campaign to stop them dueling in the Arafura Sea. And so um, that was very important and a, a great victory. When the company knew that the film was about to be launched, they suddenly announced they'd withdrawn this these, um, mining claim. So that was a great victory and they could... They put that at the end of the film, right at the last minute. <laughs> so, because, you know, you have to put an enormous amount of energy. It, it took a lot out of Helen and her daughter. You put an enormous amount of energy into these campaigns to alert people to the problems and the difficulties and to try and get national publicity was such a big job. And, but they did it. And so that was a great victory. And they should be remembered for that incredible victory of saving 1,500 kilometres of almond land. And destruction. What was her connection to Indonesia? People don't realise that there was a lot of exchange of trade and people going back and forth between the islands and Indonesia and this, you know, the northern part of Northern Territory, the coastline of Northern Territory, especially on that side. Um, and they've got a lot of common words in language, like balana is a word for white person. Well, that also is used in, in, in one of the Indonesian languages. And an enormous amount of exchange of trading and information that has gone on for thousands of years in that part of the world, which we don't recognise. Anyway, I think she went to Indonesia just to see what it was like. And then they locked her up because they thought she was a foreigner or a migrant or something because, you know, of her black skin and wouldn't believe she was Australian. That was, you know, the Indonesian authorities. So they had to. She had an Australian passport, but they wouldn't believe it. So anyway, after kerfuffle, she got released. I'm not sure what exactly she did there, but she just sort of stayed for a while and and learned the language, which is amazing. <laughs> because I think it's quite similar to Jabana, uh, the language they speak in, in Maningrida. I think she just wanted to have, have a look at the world and see. I think she was funded by an education program, part of the education program in Maningrida to go there and, you know, just exchange points of view and uh, what was happening and find out, yeah. <laughs> and there's lots of other parts of her life too. There are a lot of social services she set up for the community. Yeah, well, besides the Bawinanga Aboriginal Corporation, she also was involved in the Maningrida Progress Association, which is another local organisation. But I should mention the Barawanga Aboriginal Corporation, it's actually sort of like a local, the local council, which sort of ran things in Maningrida. Uh, the community in total is about 3,000 people, but 80 or 90% of that are Aboriginal communities. And it's very difficult because all these people just sort of bungled together. But there's 14 different... I think, no, sorry, yeah, I think there's 13 different clans in Maningrida and they've all got different customs and and values and and the ways of doing things. So it's very hard to sort of organise and, and to sort of, to solve a lot of different problems that, that come up. Yeah, so she did an enormous amount of work around that and because she spoke all those languages and she was used to different customs, she could negotiate and um, and work out a solution to a lot of difficulties that raised up. And also, she was really outspoken. If you see the film, you can tell that she was totally very, very outspoken so that she would ask the hard questions that nobody would dare voice. Aboriginal people, have been, because they've been put down for so long, they're a bit reluctant to raise different issues, but that didn't apply to Helen. She would speak out and say very clearly what the problems were. 
the need for help for the elderly to, to help the children adjust to where they were living. Was petrol sniffing a problem there as well? I'm not sure about that. I don't know what it used to be. I know it used to be, and she was really concerned about the kids who were damaged by that. I remember when we went up there in the 90s the first time, she spoke about they needed to be cared for and looked after and, uh, and a lot of their physical problems tended to. So she was fighting for that and fighting also for the elderly who, you know, could become um, quite isolated in their homes up there. She was a very compassionate person and, and fought for a lot of rights. She was also fighting for the language to be saved. See, I went up for the funeral, which lasted for six days. And so it's, I began to get an understanding of how important the funerals are. You know, like white people complain about any Aboriginal who's working or in a job and that they have to leave for about a week to go to funerals. But funerals are so important. It's a sign of the respect the person had during their long time. And also it's a way of sending them off and making sure they have a safe journey to the, the spirit world. So it's extremely important. And I didn't realize that sort of, that part of it, that cultural part of it until, we, we danced every night for, for five days when we were up there in the funeral. And they sit by the body, the women, only the women can sit by the body if it's a woman for six nights, close to without washing. And then they bury them with, you know, so it's an enormous, sort of cultural event and where all the families get together. What I was beginning to say was I talked to one of her best friends there, Val, and she told me, Valma, and she told me that they had a lot of students and um, PhD students who'd go up there and wanted to study the language and write it down. And she said, we're not going to let these people write a thesis. And then they'll just throw it in the garbage bin afterwards. It'll never be read. We've got to conserve our language and we've got to have control of it and we've got to have access to it. So she was a really strong uh, woman fighting for their um, Indigenous rights and for their rights to culture and their rights to language and their rights to uh, land rights and, and uh, sea rights. I mean, yeah. So she was involved in a lot of organisations. She was also on the Northern Territory Lands Council as a representative of Armand Land as well. So she did an enormous amount of work for the communities in this area. Were there any representatives of the Government of Northern Territory at the funeral? Yes, they sent along a representative for the Northern Lands Council and, and he even admitted that it was difficult to accept Helen as an outspoken woman that he was forced to in the end. And they also sent a representative from the Northern um, Territory Council. But yeah, I was very privileged to be there for that week during her the, the ceremony. It was a very sacred ritual they go through and it was very privileged to see that. And, I, and because I'm sort of her age and an older woman, the women, the indigenous women up there and her sisters and, and daughters invited me into to part, be part of the ceremony and sort of to sit by the body because they set up this handmade sort of shelter of palm leaves and and wood, and they put the, the coffin in there and, and leave it there for about six nights. And every evening they'd be dancing while the men and um, didgeridoos and singing. It was a very um, incredible experience, and I was very privileged to see it, and, and amazing. You know, and then I, you begin to sort of understand their cultural needs and, and how different it is from white society. 
we know we go to a funeral that lasts about two hours or an hour. You have a bit of a food after it, and that's it. But there, it's quite a, a very important ceremony. Did she neglect herself in any way because she was so involved with looking after other people? Well, I think it was an enormous stress. So really difficult because she was pulled in all directions, first by her own people and then by government officials. And she was really upset because she had set up an organisation called JET, which was Jobs, Education and Training Centre. She was very proud of that when I went up there and saw it. And in order to organise jobs for the community, because there's no work up there hardly except all the white people take it, at really high wages and they get pushed aside. And then they were defunded by the, the Northern Territory government and so that was um, lost. But that was a big, a big blow as well, I think. Because all the stress and all the anxiety and all the problems you have to deal with up there, it's a very difficult life. And so now and again she would go to Darwin and sort of go in the long grass for a little while. You know, because Manigreed is a dry community, thank goodness, but there is a lot of illegal drugs that come in through the cars, through white fellows selling it to the Aboriginal community. If she'd have lived in a community closer to major settlements, would she have got better medical treatment? It might have saved her? Yeah, she would have, because... I don't know what it is, but there's a massive problem of kidney disease amongst the Indigenous community um, all over Australia, and she got a kidney disease. And for her to have treatment, she would have had to go and live in Darwin, and she didn't want to do that. She'd brought up her whole life and spent her whole life in Mangrena. She didn't want to do that and leave the community and leave her, her adult children and all the family, all the extended family. So she refused and dialysis treatment for a year or so before she got so ill that uh, she was um, taken and brought to Darwin and treated there with dialysis. So what they need is these dialysis centres set up in the, in the outlying communities and into these areas where they're and maybe you know and able to manage it themselves or with a centre. They need a, a proper centre set up, dialysis centre set up in all these outlying communities to solve this problem. Well, in Melbourne now, people can even do it at home. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's what they need training up there. They need a massive injection of funds, government funds, to solve all these problems. You know, like the housing is such a massive problem up. You know, when I stayed up there twice, I've seen it now, that there's about 15 to 20 people have to live in each house, and each house will only have about two bedrooms, that's all, and a living space. So... But there's 15 or 20 people living there because there's just not enough houses for them. And then the houses aren't fixed up, they aren't repaired. And on top of that, you know, they had to sign over a lease for 99 years to hand over the land to the government or else they wouldn't get um, access to a house. And then they had to pay rent on it. This is their own land. You know, this is all their own, especially all their own land. They had to pay rent to the government for it. It's just ridiculous and, and an awful situation you know it can be easily repaired but no they they won't and they they, they cut all the the cdp jobs i mean that was a band-aid solution but at least it was something but they've cut all that the government so you know i blame the northern territory and the federal government for all these 
uh, horrendous problems that are up there. You can see it when you go up there, it's easy. And they could be solved overnight with proper funding managed by the Aboriginal community. How would you best remember Helen? Oh, a really tough, strong woman. Very vibrant, you know, incredible hearty laugh. She wouldn't let you get away with anything. <laughs> yeah, and her skills as a hunter was incredible. She could get any sort of fish out of the rivers up there, out of Liverpool River, where she lived, and she could... And she had... I should mention that she's got land rights. You know, she was a very strong, principled woman who would not bend. She's a traditional owner of two islands, Gabalco Island and Garaku Island and the Arafura Sea. And I visited Gabalco Island and it's a beautiful, beautiful little island. Um, it's very small, but that was her. And she would never, never sell it. She told me. Even if they offered me a couple of million dollars, I would never sell this, you know, because then she realised it'd be lost forever. And what would they gain out of it, you know, a few dollars that would soon be eaten up. So, yeah, she was a very strong, vibrant, funny... And she loved to dance. She loved dancing and singing. There's a photo of her with um, one of the singers from the 60s. Oh, I've forgotten his name. But anyway, yeah, there's a photo of her with him when she went went to saw him at a concert, but... Yeah, very, you know, it's such a loss because she knew all those communities. She knew how to operate in the white world and the the, the Ballinger world and also the indigenous communities, and it's quite enormous loss. I should mention that her family, I asked them if they would like to do this interview, but they're still really so upset and they're still in mourning, so they just felt they weren't able to to do it without bursting into tears, I think. Thanks for doing this, Coral. Well, I'm so glad you asked me because she's a woman who should be, you know, remembered and celebrated her life and what she was able to achieve. To break down that whole stereotype of the Aboriginal women, you know, they're strong, vibrant, resilient and tough women and they're going to fight and, and keep fighting for their rights. You've been listening to Coral Winter speaking about her friend Helen Williams. Thanks to Coral for doing that interview with me. It's just about time for me to go. Done by Law will be here in about one minute's time. So I'll say goodbye and I'll be back at four o'clock next Tuesday. Bye for now.